Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy, female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits, and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics, and we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. Since as early as the 1950s, psychedelics like LSD were showing real benefit in the treatment of alcoholism and other disorders. Currently, there are several psychedelic trials being conducted in leading institutions around the world, further proving the effectiveness of psychedelic-assisted therapy for smoking cessation and alcohol and drug dependency. In this episode, we're going to examine the fascinating history and current ways in which psychedelics are being used to treat substance abuse disorders. You'll discover the connection between AA and psychedelics, and why Bill W. wanted to include psychedelic therapy as one of the original 12 steps. You'll learn about the specific benefits as well as limitations of this innovative treatment for people in recovery. You'll discover some important tips to keep in mind if you want to introduce psychedelic-assisted therapy to friends or family members you feel could benefit. And we'll also discuss how one real-life bad trip led to a life-changing breakthrough for my guest. Although this is a new area under a lot of study, the potential for psychedelic-assisted therapy to help people suffering from addiction is extremely promising. And for that reason, I'm very excited to share this episode and my special guest with you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and the title of today's episode is Spiritus Contra Spiritum, the role of psychedelics in healing addiction. And we're going to explain a little bit more about that as we get through the episode. And with me today is a very inspiring woman, someone I've been looking forward to interviewing for some time, I have to say, Lauren Cabaldin. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a psychotherapist, clinical supervisor, and clinic manager at Field Trip Health based in San Diego, California. Lauren received her bachelor's degree in sociology from the University of California, San Diego, and her master's degree in counseling and depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. She currently teaches as adjunct professor in the PhD clinical psychology program at Pacifica, and she's been working with psychedelics for many years and has witnessed their transformative power when harnessed with intentional integration, ritual, and attunement. She believes that an individual's personal encounter with the unconscious is essential for the healing process. Her favorite phrase comes from Carl Jung, if we do not make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And Lauren, I was thinking back, you and I met through LinkedIn, I believe almost a year ago. Mm -hmm. And the presence you have, even on your LinkedIn profile is so palpable. I was like, I want to know that woman. And then- (laughs) Very shortly after we got to meet in person, I believe it was the Leading Edge Conference for Psychedelics. It was, yes. yes. Yeah, and we were like yeah. a radiant light moving. Oh. <laughs> like, Strangers who, who saw each other from across <laughs> the room. No, 
I am so grateful to call you not just a, a peer, but a friend and am so impressed with the work you're doing. We've collaborated on a few projects and every time I learn more about you and your background, I'm even more impressed. And I, I know the contributions you've been making to the psychedelic space are just starting. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. And I just want to say, I'm just so honored to be here with you. And I want to celebrate you because you're one of these women that I know that instead of just talking about something, you do it. And so just thank you for creating oh, space for us. I love it. Thank you. It's my honor. Well, please share a bit of your origin story because I'm always interested to know what leads people into this work, into therapy in general, and then specifically psychedelic assisted therapy. Yes. Thank you. It's always funny to hear your yourself <laughs> spoken back to you. It's kind of like, oh, this is these are the things I do and who I am. What is my identity? Who am I? But origin story, and I love how you put that, my origin story. I can just start from the beginning as, as the youngest child, as the baby. I think I always kind of had this role of being the, the silly one or using humor or sarcasm to make light of situations. And I think that's always been my, my gift. And I think that translates even into the psychedelic space. Like if you can't laugh about even some of these intense or you know challenging journeys, then what are we doing here? Right. And so I've always had that little like, you know, silliness or sarcasm, which can sometimes get me in trouble. But I think it was also pretty healing as I grew up and in my family. And I guess with my origin story, I was always very fascinated by my own dreams. And I remember vividly and I even had an amazing dream this morning, which I think kind of leading up to this conversation. But my imagination was always just so intense. And I would share my dreams with people sometimes. And they were like, are you a psychopath? What's what's going on? <laughs> and, you know, I was like, wait a second, this, I don't want to do some of these things or these interesting images or, you know, metaphors that show up. But I always knew that there was something else in the ether and, you know, that I was curious about from a young age. I was always a bit of a misfit. I was really into like black metal growing up and kind of ate lunch by myself, you know, in middle school and high school. And I was fine with it. I was cool with it. I think I never wanted to really fit in, which is why I think that's why I, to this day, have a passion for working with addiction and working with people with severe mental illness and neuroses that don't quite really fit in, or we have a little bit of fear that comes up around it. And so I was always curious about those individuals that were alone or that were suffering or that I could tell had a trauma in their childhood or in their past that they were working on coping with. And so from a young age, I remember really feeling, really, really feeling that even individuals that were engaging in socially unacceptable behaviors were oftentimes trying to relieve some sort of pain. Mm. or disconnection. And I don't know, I just always had a soft spot for, you know, even when I would witness people behaving in ways that were, you know, stealing things or being abusive or shooting up drugs. I was like, there is some suffering there. And I always had an empathic heart for those individuals. And I could sit with it. I could sit with a child abuser and know that I have something that I can be here with this person that they might not get from anybody else. And this might be able to save other people or save, help save them. And so as I grew up, I had no idea what, what I was going to do with my life. I, I got into education and realized kids struggle in school because a lot of times of what's going on at home. 
And I vividly remember one day I had a student come into my class and she said, you know, I, I don't know if I'm ready for this final exam today because my, my mom pulled a knife on my sister last night. And I can remember, you know, those moments when vividly I'm like, I can't help teach this girl about literature and English when she can't even survive. She's in fight or flight at home and her nervous system is on edge. How is she supposed to relax and learn and receive? And I think that was one of the pivotal moments when I realized I, I wanted to do, I didn't know that it was therapy, but I wanted to do something where I could explore that suffering and make meaning out of that moment where her mother pulled that knife on her sister and what that felt like for her. And so I eventually you know, found a school called Pacifica Graduate Institute, which I don't think I would have become a therapist without that school because it was in the Jungian tradition. So depth psychology really explores the unconscious and our dreams. And, you know, I think goes a little bit deeper. And I was really drawn to, to Carl Jung's work and dream work in particular. And then I found myself in working in treatment, in addiction treatment, particularly, and with mental health and part of the founding team of, of a big treatment center here in California. And I began loving working with that population. And there's, it's tough to work with that population, but I just, for some reason, I had the stamina and the energetic space for it. And I just, it was where I was called. And now I'm working with psychedelics and I've personally have had a lot of journeys myself, which we can speak a bit about, but I think there is a beautiful bridge that can be built with the addictive processes that I'd see with my clients and dismantling those processes or bringing light to those processes with, with psychedelic medicine. Wow. Well, as soon as you mentioned dreams, it made complete sense to me why you were such a fan of Carl Jung. And I didn't realize with Pacifica, they put that much emphasis on that part yes. of the meeting. So perfect for yes. you, for sure. Yes. So yeah. currently now you're managing the clinic in San Diego Field Trip. Most people know Field Trip is one of the leading clinics that offers ketamine treatment. And I'm sure many of our listeners know about ketamine, but for those that don't, could you explain a little bit more about that? Who would be a good candidate for ketamine therapy and what are the benefits and limitations of that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I know in the collective conscience, I think we still might see it as horse tranquilizer or special K or party drug. All good. That's part of its energy. And I completely, you know, accept all of those things because that's part of the narrative of any medicine or substance we're using. We have to recognize its history and what else it's potentially used for. And so what I love about this man-made molecule, and I know that even in the psychedelic space, there's that the plant medicine is the real medicine, and this is the, the man-made substance. And so it carries with it different energy. And I always think to myself, well, man is part of nature. And thus, you know, the creation of ketamine, which actually came almost by accident from the creation of PCP was born out of the intention to relieve pain and to create kind of a dissociative anesthetic to help individuals, maybe through surgery or just with dealing with pain. And what a beautiful intention, you know, even with Western medicine, that intention behind it was to help with healing. Right. And some, we can use it recreationally as an, a way to escape every substance even food can be used with different intentions that are either of the light or of the dark. So I think ketamine for me, I've tried a lot of the psychedelic medicines and that was one of the last. And strangely enough, an individual, her name starts with the letter K. She offered it to me for the first time. She knows who she is. And for me, it was almost like turning on my entire brain. And with ketamine, the, you know, the mechanism of action really, it, it modulates 
glutamate, which is different than work, you know, working with serotonin or oxytocin with MDMA or psilocybin. And that's why I really love ketamine because it kind of reminds me a little bit of myself in terms of it's kind of a trickster, you know, with MDMA, we kind of always know we're going to, we're just going to feel good and full of love. Our heart's going to open, but with ketamine, it's going to snake up on you and it has a lot of mystery. And I think because what it does is it really scientifically activates those neuronal connections. It's almost like fertilizer for the roots of the tree and the brain that I call the neuronal connections. And so what would happen if your brain was turned on, if those neuronal connections and those pathways were re-energized, it's going to look different for different people. Right. And so parts of our brain that might've been dormant, you know, because we needed to protect ourselves or dissociate or compartmentalize sometimes come alive with ketamine. And so that's why it can be sometimes challenging or difficult or dark memories can come up. So when people ask me, how is this going to go? Or is this going to cure me? Or what am I going to see? What am I going to feel? I love that I have no answer because the answer always comes from the journeyer. And this is what I love about this medicine is it is unpredictable. And that's why medical doctors might be struggling with it a little bit because it's so unpredictable. We like to have a medicine that treats a symptom and we know for sure it does these things. And in the clinical trials, it shows us but with ketamine, it's a bit more of a mysterious molecule. And I love that about it. And while it can create relaxation, it can calm what's called that default mode network. So it really disrupts that automatic story we have going on in our brain and in our bodies of who we think we are, which has been built up over time. I mean, we, we wake up every morning and say, you know, I am Lauren. I think this way. I believe this way. This is my past. This is how I'm going to show up with my clients today but we have the power to alter that at any moment. And what I love about ketamine is that it can be quite a spiritual substance and remind us of the power that we have, which can be really scary to people <laughs> that we are powerful beings that can shift our narrative and shift our timeline at any time. And I often witness clients re returning back from their medicine experience sharing, whoa, I don't know what is real, if our conversation right now is real or where I went was real and that can be really healing. I'm creating reality right now. And I know that sounds super woo woo because it is, I'm sorry. It is. And, but the woo is also science. Science is magic. Magic is science. And I, I love that about ketamine that it can be given in a safe medical setting. And what we do here at field trip is intramuscular injection under the supervision of a nurse practitioner. So for individuals that are afraid of, of a new psychedelic or had, you know, a bad acid trip back in college and they might be 65 years old and their, their 20 year old kid showed them an article, you know, about, about ketamine and they're curious, you know, we can provide a lot of safety because it is, that is the only medicine right now that is FDA approved dissociative anesthetic. So why not use it if it's a tool that we have that's available, even though I'm excited for the whole toolkit that is to come, but but this is the medicine we have right now. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Fascinating. So interesting to hear you talk to about its impact on neuroplasticity in my research. That's the piece that's always fascinated me about ketamine. And I'm guessing in your clinic, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of people coming in are looking for relief from anxiety and depression, which yes. isn't it true in many cases is caused by that rigid thinking, those behavior and thinking patterns that just get so entrenched. It's really hard to break out of that unless you're 
using a substance like ketamine or, or doing something that's going to radically shake up your inner thinking and inner behavioral system. Mm. Absolutely. Yes. I think, you know, many therapists that have encountered that stuckness with their client that might've come to them because of depression or they re reported depressive symptoms or anxious symptoms or OCD or hypervigilance with PTSD. They reported that on their intake questionnaire or, you know, in their biopsychosocial. Yet we all know all of those are like a mycelial web of disorders that for our own, you know, understanding, we've put them all in the DSM so we can really help to make sense of it all, but they're all connected. I haven't met someone that struggles with substance use disorder that's not struggling with depression or anxiety or something else, right? There's always a connection there. And so I think, and that is often connected to the story that we tell ourselves about who we are and why we're here. And that usually lives in that default mode network. And so it's almost like, and this is why dream work and also ketamine work kind of are great parallels because in the dream state, which is where Freud was also trying to get his patients, really that free association state is our true self. And so if we can shut down that default mode network, that, that narrative that has maybe kept us alive and surviving in the world, when we get to the true self, you know, that is only accessible through real safety and quieting and calming of that nervous system. And we try to get there with all the different modalities. You know, I also do EMDR and what's been really interesting, you know, for those of you that don't know what EMDR is, I'm, I'm kind of using that bilateral stimulation, almost like hypnosis to calm the body and get us out of that amygdala, the fear center. And um, ketamine does, does it very similarly and almost more uh, like a straight arrow to that relaxed state where an individual can be suggestible or malleable. That's what I love about this medicine. And people say, why do I need a medicine? You know, why can't I just, you know, go to therapy? I don't need something else, or I don't want to take another medication. I want to do this in a pure way. Fine. All good. But I also am a believer if there's a tool there that's effective, why not use it? Right. Why continue to suffer if somehow the universe delivered to us a tool that doesn't have many adverse side effects from what we're learning so far? I mean, there are some contraindications like high blood pressure. To me, the bigger contraindication, what we talk about a lot here at Field Trip is your willingness and your motivation. Hmm. Yeah, imagine like all psychedelic therapy intentions, everything. Do you find that with your clients too? Having clear intentions and being very committed to the process influences the outcome? Oh, it's everything. It yeah. can be everything. Someone can have a difficult, painful journey and vomit, you know, and be nauseous. Yet if the intention was to listen to their body or to just accept and surrender to whatever comes up, literally, yeah. uh, then in the integration process, maybe the body was screaming at us to look at something, right? Mm -hmm. So if our intention can be open to whatever needs to be received or heard, then in the integration process after the medicine journey, it all starts to, to become, it's all the part of the process of becoming more whole nothing is good or bad. It's just increasing more of that consciousness. And, and that's really the framework that I see it. So when somebody's having that difficult journey, you know, I'm reminding them of that pre-integration. I even like, instead of preparation, I like to call it pre-integrating because you're already integrating this process. The medicine's just a little helper, a little, little support system mm -hmm. you know, are really the medicine here. Right. Another tool in the toolbox. 
very powerful tool. That's right. Yeah. So I'm curious, what are some of the benefits or success stories you're seeing mm. with your clients? Obviously, we won't divulge anything confidential here, but in general, what are people getting from ketamine-assisted therapy? Wow. I mean, it's funny because it, I almost feel like I, I don't, <laughs> this will sound silly, but in some ways, sometimes it's too good to be true. Like, I'm still like, wow, how did we get to this level of healing or insight in after just one session? And so I need to like censor myself so I don't sound like a snake oil saleswoman, but mm. it really is true. A lot of times I'll have clients come back from a journey and really do say this felt like 10 years of therapy, you know, all those things that you hear, yet it's almost like this is the beginning of the real journey. Like what I might've been doing before. And a lot of people do this even in therapy too. They believe they're getting to the root of their problem or really admitting what needs to be worked on, but they're actually just kind of talking around it and maybe using the therapeutic relationship as a look, everyone, I am trying to do healing and whatever, but then there still is a lot of fear to go to this deep place of, yeah, I am powerless over this. Or yes, what my father did do has had an impact, even though I'm okay now, I'm good with men, I don't have any problem there. It's really getting to the truth that you can't deny. And it can be a process and it, it doesn't always happen in one session. And I don't, I wanna be sure that I'm clear, this is not just a silver bullet, but what the energy of this kind of a psychedelic experience can offer is the benefit of a perspective shift. And a lot of times I have clients say, you know, I can see, I can now see my part in it. The situation hasn't changed, but I can see I have a part to play. So if I can shift my perspective and accept more responsibility or accountability, that creates more happiness, right? Or more mm -hmm. wholeness, more liberation mm -hmm. from pain. And so it's very different for each individual and each session, you know, if a client comes in for six sessions, each, each session is so different. And I think the medicine does a beautiful job because it is, you know, in dialogue with the psyche at waiting for the client to be, feel completely safe in their own body and in their own psyche to go to a particular place. So again, you know, sometimes I'll witness resistance with clients and I will never say you're resisting. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm here, I'm here for you. I'm here to hold space with unconditional positive regard and love and no judgment. But even that in and of itself, that holding someone with such love and non-judgment is healing before we introduce the medicine. But yeah, benefits have been incredible. And I think one of the most fascinating things to me as someone that works a lot with suicidal ideation is the rapid, um, fast acting nature of this medicine to interrupt suicidal thoughts. Mm. And uh, again, that to me is the clearest indication of, Ooh, it's interrupting this, uh, default mode network, this pattern in a very, very abrupt way it shakes up that whole system. Of course it can mean different things for different people, but when it does, when it has that fast impact, it can be really powerful for someone that might be really struggling with thoughts of suicide, they might not have much time left, which is why my inner, my inner angst goes, you know, I really want to be able to offer this to more people if they're, if it's appropriate and if they're ready. And so, yeah, hopefully we'll get to a place where, where it's more accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very powerful impact there. And I love what you said that the psychedelic session is in many ways, just the beginning, right? It's yeah. certainly where a lot of change happens, but it really, in my understanding, 
resets the brain in a way that allows for some pretty powerful integration work afterwards. And there's a lot of talk about the 30 days after a session and just what can be accomplished in terms of new habit creation and new behavior, new approaches to behavior. I'm just curious with the work you do. Yeah. What is there anything you can speak to there in terms of the importance of integrating after a session like ketamine? Oh, yes. I think integration is is one of the most important things and why a lot of people might look back on like earlier psychedelic experiences they might've had as challenging or, or difficult is be, and oftentimes because there, we were lacking the preparation phase or the integration. And so integration to me is really taking that knowledge or whatever, you know, insights came up in that journey and turning it into wisdom. And so it's that kind of that alchemical retort of turning that lead okay, I felt this sensation, I saw this image, or my ancestor came to visit me, or I saw Jesus Christ, and <laughs> it is me. And I, you know, these are based on true events, you know, or I became, <laughs> one, one client shared with me, and I'm, I'm sure she'd be fine with this. She's shared it openly in groups, but she shared that her brain cells were making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> and she's like, how am I going to integrate this later? I, but I just, I joined my brain cells in making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And just the absurdity, but also the beauty or the, you know, awesomeness of these experiences, they can just be like, you know, watching a really heart-wrenching movie and then going back to my nine to five tomorrow, or I can take whatever emotion came up and whatever invitation to bring this work or this experience or this feeling into my relationships, into my present moment, into my lived experience. And, you know, I've had plenty of difficult journeys and if I didn't integrate them, they'd just be really difficult journeys. And I took too many mushrooms or I did this, but you know, if I can integrate them, they become this part of my, my experience here on this planet, they become a, a beautiful learning opportunity and a gift. The way we integrate, the way we get curious. I mean, I've had clients say, oh, the medicine didn't work. I didn't feel anything. Right. Okay. What's that like to not feel anything and have such a hope or an expectation that this was going to help you? Hey, well, I paid a lot of money or I spent a lot of time to come, you know, I know, and I, I, I can't do anything about, <laughs> about that aspect, but here's where we are right now with it. And how can we unpack that? How can we go into the crevices of disappointment, frustration, expectation, and work with that? Where else does that show up in your world? And, you know, how can we integrate that anger? And most of the time we find that there was a lot of expectation or a lot of buildup or a lot of, this is going to be it. And then the letdown had such an impact. There's all sorts of things we bring to our psychedelic experiences. And that is it. That's part of the psychedelic experience. It's us before we get into it. The whole, our whole life is psychedelic. And so the medicine's just this fun little trickster that allows us to have a more of a deep moment in the mirror if we choose to look. So integration can be, I believe that the most powerful piece of the experience where we really make meaning and make yeah. purpose out of that experience. I love that. To me, I remember being reminded how every experience is perfect, even when yeah. it appears not to be. And I love the fact that you're able to help people look at the disappointment maybe, or uh, how their expectations weren't met and realize that's where the gold is. That's where the gift is, right? That that even when, quote, things don't look like they're working, there's something so valuable to take from that and learn from that. And that, as, that is actually the lesson in the whole experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, brilliant stuff. 
There's no hiding, no hiding in therapy, no hiding in psychedelics, really. No hiding at all. And the other question is, what were you hoping to happen, to have happened? And then you get real about that. And then what's stopping you from making that change? You don't need medicine then. Maybe it really is just you. And then there's a wrestling with that. So yeah, fun to get curious about all that. Yeah, so interesting. You mentioned too that you noticed clients coming through the clinic are now starting to be interested in and asking about opportunities to do this work with their partners, their family members. What's your take on that? Yeah. And I mean, this has come up for me personally a bit as well, but I think psychedelics aren't new. We're just having a reemergence as we're going through this new shift on our planet. I, It's interesting because I think we're moving so much came from this masculine era of, you know, growth and industry and, and, you know, medical advances. And there's a beauty in that. And I think now we're returning to more of the spiritual, the feminine, the intuitive. And so there's a big shift happening on our planet. And so this conversation is now becoming more relevant. And it's funny, I I sent my my family a little, you know, YouTube video from the Today Show where Field Trip was featured. And, you know, any way that we can kind of bridge kind of the mainstream consciousness and, you know, that feeling of safety or what's familiar or what's known with the unknown, right? And right now, ketamine might feel a little bit like, yeah, no, that's a party drug. And yes, understanding that everyone's experience comes from the collective understanding or, you know, whatever story we've created. And so when talking to family or friends or anyone that you feel like might benefit, one of my biggest pieces of advice is listen, stay curious, don't push anything on anybody. I think we can all agree that's never a good way to to, uh, get your point across. But if you're sensing that curiosity, be available, (laughs) you know, and I think sharing your own personal experience is always undeniable. So, you know, someone can say, well, I heard someone had this bad experience or this bad, you know, adverse event. Okay. That happens with prescribed medications that we're, we're handing out now to, to people. So just sharing your own personal experience. And I would also say using data, facts, science, very matter of fact, and, you know, coming from a space of intellectual curiosity, and then just, you know, starting to understand maybe your family members hesitations, maybe their own story about it. You know, well, I used it during the Woodstock days and then, you know, but we're not, you know, that it was banned a long time ago. And, you know, the war on drugs narrative is still very alive in our collective conscious as well. So I think just, just being open and ready and then providing some tools. I always think, I always say that giving like an article or a video, or most importantly, even some of these real accounts from veterans that have gone through MDMA treatment with maps can be really powerful. So allowing them to see it in different ways without just your overzealous, yes, oh my gosh, ketamine is great. (laughs) Um, Because it's a good ego check. You know, it's also a good way to say, the medicine is helpful, but it's not everything either. It's a good ego check reminder. Yeah. Good points. I know when people have very powerful and transformative experiences, it's easy to fall into that trap of being a little evangelical about it, but really appreciate the nuanced points you have there. And I agree personal stories, stories of other people and your own personal story are just so powerful. So just Mm -hmm. sharing your experience without maybe expectation can also Mm -hmm. be really helpful. Yeah. Well, let's change gears slightly because I think you're the perfect person to speak to 
about this topic. There have been a number of clinical trials that have focused on the benefits of psychedelic-assisted therapy for substance abuse and addiction. They've studied everything from smoking cessation to alcoholism. I think there's even a study right now that's looking at cocaine addiction. Mm -hmm. So knowing that you have such a strong background in recovery treatments and dealing with addiction, what role do you see ketamine or maybe even other forms of psychedelic assisted therapy playing in someone's recovery? Very important question, Sonia. I'm glad we're, we're getting to this for me. I want to start by saying the addictive process is alive in all of us. And I don't mean that all of us suffers with an addiction, but I I do mean that we're always looking for that balance, that homeostasis, which we often can find from even working too much or working out or food or relationships. And so, you know, I always want to take a step back and never, you know, with, with addiction particularly, and really seek to, to understand the individual that is struggling with an addictive process because there's always a pain relieving mechanism going on there. So I always see the behavior as, as a coping skill rather than something to be stigmatized or something that they're doing that's bad. So starting from that premise um, and even working with clients that I've worked with, you know, I believe there is a lot of promise of psychedelics working with the addictive process. And we do have to be very careful which I think goes without saying, because I think there is that rightful fear for many individuals that struggle, particularly with addiction to substances, that altered state will bring them back into the darkness of their relationship with the substance. And so my background is really strong in like rites of passage. I wrote my master's thesis on rites of passage. And and I believe we don't have any of those real rituals or ceremonies in Western contemporary society that allow for the death of old ways and the rebirth of new ways or the death of the child and the rebirth of the adult. And so I believe that a lot of the addictive processes that are so alive are really just expressions of our lost connection with tribe, with community, with ritual. I mean, we have, you know, graduations and weddings, but more and more, we're not infusing that spiritual meaning of a new chapter or a new way of being in our ceremonies in Western contemporary culture. And so I do believe that the addictive process, and even Carl Jung talks about this in his letters with Bill W, is an attempt at achieving a higher religious experience. And that's where those words spiritus contra spiritum come from in Latin. Bill, you know, Carl Jung was writing to Bill W, which is, you know, why I find, you know, the addictive process goes so well with, you know, a deeper understanding of the psyche. And he wrote one of his early patients, Roland, who struggled with, with alcohol. He was not, Carl Jung himself was not able to help cure his alcoholism. He knew that Carl Jung or that Roland needed a deeper spiritual experience. And this can be called a religious experience, a spiritual awakening. Bill W was very familiar with this. He wrote about it extensively and in Alcoholics Anonymous it's referenced. And it's less about communion with God, capital G O D and more about an experience of encountering the shadow within ourselves. And this is why I believe that psychedelics and, you know, having that encounter with our unconscious can be really powerful. And even the steps of the 12 steps, I think go hand in hand with integration work. (laughs) You know, step four is really taking a fearless and moral inventory of all your shortcomings, resentments, fears, how you've harmed and done wrong to others. 
God, imagine if we all did more of that, how much better the world would be. But just like how psychedelics often get us deeper to a truth that we're not willing to look at, right? Or say to another individual, which is step five is having a witness, someone bear witness to that, which is another aspect of ritual and community. And another beautiful piece of Bill W's work around self-help groups and the AA groups, there was none of that before Bill W came on the scene, say what you want about him. <laughs> but I've really come to, to, to see him as a man that was working on having a spiritual experience or cultivating an environment for that, for the people that needed help with their addictive processes. And so, like we mentioned, you know, being able to kind of break down that default mode network or that need that pri our brain starts prioritizing the drink or the heroin or, you know, the Adderall to help us maintain a level of feeling like we have power or control over our lives. A lot of people think that the addictive process or the addict or the alcoholic is out of control, is impulsive. And it's interesting, I would argue it's the exact opposite, that the addictive process is their attempt oftentimes at regaining control over their life, even though it can look like chaos, but it often comes from that unmet need in childhood for attachment. And Psychedelics also can potentially offer us that deeper connection with self. I do want to say, you know, it's important that we're cautious, obviously, as a substance can bring up a lot for an individual that has maintained sobriety or that's important to their program of recovery. So I really want to stress that it's very individual and something that if you have a sponsor or a therapist or a mentor or a guide in your recovery, process this out. With them. I'd never recommend someone in recovery to seek out psychedelics. It's a very personal journey, but oftentimes, you know, the medicine work will, will call to you. And I do see um, even a lot of individuals that have been sober from a substance, say for a year or two, um, but they're still struggling with emotional sobriety. So they maybe haven't had a drink in several years, but they're still quick to anger when their wife looks at them the wrong way. And so there's still some unresolved trauma that needs to be healed or witnessed within their soul. And if it's appropriate, you know, and if they feel like they're in tune and grounded enough to have a communion with a deeper part of their, you know, unconscious, maybe a psychedelic medicine would be helpful. And mm -hmm. I certainly these, these trials that we're seeing even now, you know, are indicating that it can really help quiet that incessant, you know, pattern. And what we've also seen is the addictive process is deeply correlated with anxiety and OCD. So it's kind of like this brain lock, like I don't have power or control, even with OCD, with obsessive compulsive disorder, it's, I don't want to maybe touch that door handle five times or wash my hands three times, yet it doesn't feel like I have free will or choice. And that mechanism can, I believe, also be broken down with, with psychedelic medicine, if done with a lot of safety support and supervision. So I would never encourage someone that's, you know, in a program of recovery to, to seek this out really on their own. I believe it requires a lot of um, medical support, professional support, whether that's, you know, a shaman that knows what they're doing or a professional uh, Western clinician that knows about this process. But yeah, I believe there's a lot of promise there from what mm -hmm. I've seen. It is fascinating. And one of the most interesting trials I read about was research being done in the 50s in mm -hmm. Saskatchewan, Canada, by Humphrey Osmond, who I believe was one of the first 
to use LSD treatment with alcoholism. And I believe the group of men he was working with, they had a phenomenal success rate, at least 50% were still sober a year later after doing this LSD treatment. And if memory serves, Bill W. heard about that work and visited the clinic and was quite interested in the potential of incorporating psychedelic therapy as one of the 12 steps. He admitted he'd had some experience with psychedelics that really helped him move from being a dry drunk, someone who just didn't use substances to someone who was really on a much more emotionally and mentally healthy path. And I believe he met a fair amount of resistance from some of the people in AA who really prescribed to that idea of complete abstinence. So I am curious, do you find when you're talking to people who are in recovery or dealing with addictions, is there that initial pushback about psychedelics because of that same belief about abstinence and absolute sobriety to all substances? Yeah. Yes and no. I would say I usually, I never bring it up and that's very intentional. I never bring it up uh, with individuals, either former clients or colleagues, you know, because for me, it's sacred, the process. And I never want to create an energy of oh, there's something over here that might be missing in your process. Why don't you try this? So I think in that conversation, again, it's almost like if someone comes to me, I want to be able to provide them support and resources. And I will still be very, I don't know what the right word for this is, but very much like, you know, you don't need anything else. You are whole already. Yet if something within you is calling for this, this experience, and I've, I've had this with, with a couple of former clients, then just be curious about that. Be curious if there, you, you think there is maybe still something that can be examined. Maybe there is a reason we're having this conversation right now and trust that. And I will never recommend or push you towards anything, but I, I'm here as a support and I'm, I'm happy to provide resources. And I feel like that's more my role is kind of the, <laughs> space, holding some space for it rather than being the, the person that recommends it and brings them to it. It's, it's really has to be their dance coming from them. And I want to honor that journey must come purely from the individual. And so if their psyche is responding to messages in the universe or their synchronicities that are showing them that this might be the path for their deeper healing, I'm here. I love that. I think that's honestly what makes you one of the most skillful therapists I know, your ability to trust the process. And again, I think a lot of well-meaning people, because of the results they see people getting with psychedelic assisted therapy, could easily recommend it to everybody. But I really sense you trust if it is meant to be, it will have shown up on their radar somewhere. And then you're just able to support that work if it makes sense. Yeah. I know some people that I've spoken to who are very interested in psychedelic assisted therapy are a little concerned about the possibility of having to deal with trauma or uncomfortable feelings or experiencing a so-called bad trip. So what advice or insight would you share with them? Well, this might be a good time for me to share a little bit about my own bad trip, but I will say that, again, this is where the preparation and integration are essential to frame the experience itself. I mean, going all the way back to the Eleusinian mysteries outside of Athens. I mean, this was, we, they spent a year of purification and intention setting before their experience. And so even though they might've had an uncomfortable experience or negative or difficult material came up because they were prepared for it, they 
we're able to, I believe, hopefully understand it in the realm of the spiritual consciousness of why this was important. So bad trips, challenging trips, I believe can also be the most powerful trips and the most important trips. So, you know, I can share, I I did have a difficult mushroom journey in Joshua tree uh, many years ago, probably the most difficult journey I've had on the medicine, but also the most important and the most meaningful. So saying that I, you know, I had had so many blissful, euphoric, amazing experiences with psychedelics. And then this one just knocked me on my butt and humbled me, got me on my knees. And just the short version, I experienced the feeling of being suicidal. And I want to be really cautious that, you know, I believe that is particularly with, with mushrooms. When I work with mushrooms, there's this energy of it knows when you're ready it knows when you have the tools to manage a certain material. And I believe that. And so I believe because I believe that that was part of my mindset that I brought in to the experience. I was with people I trusted. I, you know, took a dose that I, you know, was re- felt ready for, felt right for me. And I was at a point in my time in my career where I was actually seeking to understand what it felt like to be suicidal. And I had never felt that before yet. For some reason, I, Felt like I had this gift to work with with people when they were expressing suicidal thoughts and actually had a plan and actually had means and were on the brink. And so just even in the short version, my journey went from like almost accessing all the Akashic records and it was beautiful and I saw Cleopatra and it was amazing to then I was then ushered into this experience of now that you've had access to all this, you're not necessarily safe in your own mind and in your own body. And so what was fascinating to me was I tapped into the experience of feeling neurotic, feeling psychotic, feeling suicidal, feeling like I knew, I knew I had taken a substance, but I couldn't make sense of the the situation. And I, I tapped into what it must feel like to be schizophrenic, to, to feel really suicidal. And I want to honor that, you know, I could never really know what that is like. So this is just speaking from that one experience, but what it gave me was the feeling of, wow, safety is of the utmost importance. And even in a few moments, my, I I was like, okay, I want to lock myself in a bathroom here on this campsite. And it was funny because my, my partner was like, no, there's other people here that need to use the bathroom. And it might seem trivial, but it was like, in that moment, I was expressing exactly what I needed. And a person that was close to me, even that was, I would consider my support system. He was just like, no, you're, you know, you maybe took a little too much mushrooms. We're going to take you out of here. He was well-meaning, but what it showed me was the, when the individual is crying out for help and when they feel unsafe in their own psyche, that as a tribe, we need to listen and honor whatever is coming up for them is their truth. Even if it feels like they're being too needy or asking for too much or being dramatic or, you know, and, and again, that goes back to even with personality disorders, with borderline traits or narcissism, we are all in some way a little bit narcissistic because what that really means is we need, an, we are asking for a need to be met that maybe wasn't met in our childhood or growing up. And so I got to tap into that. And while it was difficult, absolutely. I had the experience of being unsafe in my own mind. And what would happen to me if someone called 911? What would happen with my career, my profession, with what would people think of me? And I had this moment of realization of that's what neuroses really is. 
it's really my fear of how I might be judged or seen by others. So what if others really just validated your experience completely? How could that be healing and potentially melt away your neuroses? And that was really insightful. And, you know, I had written so many safety plans and suicide risk assessments for clients. And it was fascinating because I was like, I'm actually writing my own right now. (laughs) And I mean, it almost brings me to tears because it was like that talk about empathy. I can now sit across from someone expressing suicidal thoughts and play that timeline forward in my mind. What if I do call 911? Is that the purest expression of my connection and understanding? While I understand in our Western model, that's, you know, we need to provide them safety and support and containment. I get that logically and rationally, but on the spiritual sense, on the soulful sense, am I inadvertently abandoning them? Just like maybe my partner saying, we need to get out of the bathroom right now. And I'm going, oh my God, this is all I need right now. And the world is just for you to be with me for five more minutes, right? But you're looking at me like I'm crazy. And this is what sometimes our clients feel in the world, that everyone's looking at them like they're crazy. And wouldn't you be crazy if everybody was looking at you like you were crazy, right? And so, yeah, Carl Jung says, you know, show me a sane man and I will cure him. And I think what he meant by that really was if we're well-adjusted to kind of our maladaptive society, there might be something wrong with us. So be a little crazy, go into that realm, know that that doesn't mean that you're necessarily has a diagnosis from the DSM, because I think that all comes from lack of secure attachment and connection. I can almost trace every DSM diagnosis to that lack of, of safety and connection. And that was my moment of that. And then I accessed this matrix of different thoughts. And I, then I realized I can move my thoughts around. And I can move this suicidal thought or this anxious thought or this fear. And what if we could really do that? Like move our thoughts around kind of like shells in a game. And uh, that was also really illuminating. So terrifying in a lot of ways, challenging, could be construed as my worst trip ever, but it was the best trip ever. Mm. (laughs) Because I had the support though, which is also what I want to say is the support, the safety, the setting is of paramount importance. Otherwise, who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, I might have that might have not turned out in mm-hmm. the most in the best way for me. Wow, it's so interesting, as you said, how psychedelics tend to give us the experience we most need. And I can imagine as someone who's worked with clients who've gone through, perhaps in some ways, a similar experience, that experience yourself has had to inform and enhance your capacity as a therapist. How have you found it's made you a better therapist having had that reference? Oh my God. I think I went back to working with a client the next day and I was just like almost melted into their pain. It was the definition of what we're trying to get to when in therapeutic trainings, we say practice radical empathy and, you know, step into their experience and unconditional positive regard easier said than done when every day your client might be threatening suicide and your inner dialogue is saying, oh, they're just, they're just want attention. Of course they do. (laughs) That's exactly what they want. They want connection. And that's what I needed on the deepest depths of my soul. And I now see it in a way that allows me to have infinite compassion for it. Doesn't mean I still don't have my own boundaries around it because boundaries are important. But when someone is in severe psychological distress or crisis, I can now feel what that feels like when, you know, maybe we call 911 because we're afraid 
and maybe that's the right thing to do, but then maybe the police show up and then someone gets put in handcuffs. Like what are the real implications of how we're responding as clinicians or professionals when someone's asking for connection? That's really what they're asking for. Mm, brilliant. Well, that leads me to my next question, because there is some debate over the importance of therapists or others that want to do psychedelic therapy or, or do this work to have their own psychedelic experiences. What's your take on that? How important is it, do you think, to have at least experienced some form of psychedelic work in order to be really effective at doing this with others? I'm glad you asked that because it's come up a lot with my colleagues. And what I would say is, you know, to a therapist or a practitioner, what comes up for you when you even are looking at that question? So if you ask yourself, is it important for me to have a psychedelic experience to be able to, to sit with my clients, what comes up? And if it's no, I believe that I have, you know, gone to some of the depths of my psyche that I feel like I, you know, I don't want to say the word worthy, but I believe that I have challenged myself in a way or done the work in a way that I have, I would not ask my client to go somewhere that I haven't been myself. It doesn't necessarily need to be achieved with psychedelic medicine it can definitely be breath work, yoga, fasting, just doing trauma work, even, you know, internal family systems work or EMDR. It doesn't need to be ingesting a psychedelic substance, right? However, if the internal response is fear, or avoidance, or oof, I don't know what could come up and I'm a little nervous about that. And there's no real medical contraindication present for you. I would get curious about that. That would be all I'd say about that. Yeah, definitely worth considering for sure. Mm -hmm. And you obviously have such a tremendous head start in the psychedelic space through your own personal experiences with psychedelics and now the leader of a ketamine clinic. You've had lots of opportunity to work with ketamine for other therapists or other people out there that want to get into this work. What would you recommend? What are some steps people can take that would really prepare them to do great psychedelic assisted therapy? Great question. Yeah. Rick Doblin says we need what a hundred thousand psychedelic practitioners in the next few years. So, I mean, this is definitely, there is a need for this type of work. And what I would say is being curious about all of the trainings and retreats and all of these beautiful offerings. I mean, there's just some amazing human beings creating, and you're one of them, Sonia, creating these amazing different trainings. And so I would just get curious and research maybe one individuals that might resonate with you. Maybe those that you've read some of their books in the past, or if you can watch them speaking, you know, on a YouTube video, just anybody, it's really about, I think the individuals who are, would be putting on certain trainings, if you resonate with who they are, how they approach the work, because not all training programs would be created equal. And I would say understanding the element of what you just mentioned, the experiential for yourself, if that's a component. Um, to me, that was the most illuminating piece of personal education was my own experiential work. So examining maybe a hesitation around that. I know a lot of, I, I did the Integrative Psychiatry Institute training in Boulder which was a, a wonderful training. I'll give a plug to them. It's a year long virtual, but then we did our experiential and it was fascinating to me. You know, there still were a lot of individuals that had never had their own experience, which is absolutely beautiful and acceptable. Yet I could still see there were some, some resistance. So just examining that, I think it's a, a, an important 
piece to look at and getting honest about whether or not you want to have your own experience with the medicine, whether before you embark on a training or after people ask me a lot about, you know, keeping your license. You know, a lot of people are entering the space that are just, that are coaches, not just coaches. Coaching is a, is a wonderful thing, but might not have a professional license like an LCSW or a psychology license or LMFT, which I think is amazing. We need all the different types of healers and space holders that we can get. And I love it. It's a beautiful thing. I, I think for me personally, I, I love that I, I know the rules so that I can know how to elegantly break them. You know, I feel confident sitting with, you know, trauma or suicidality. So what I would say, if you don't have training, particularly in trauma work or internal family systems or like EMDR, those are pretty essential to understand the, the nature of trauma and being able to sit with it yourself. So yeah, find a training that resonates with you. That's what I would say. Love it. Great suggestions. Well, we could talk all day, I know, about other work that you're up to, but I won't keep you any longer. Thank you very much for sharing more about your experience. And you are definitely one of the women to watch in this space. So I'm going to encourage everybody listening to go find Lauren and follow her. And how can they do that? Where are you located on the web or on social media? I am currently on LinkedIn. I am not on social media, but LinkedIn, you can find me there. You can cyber stalk me all you want, and I will- Brilliant. Add you. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. We'll make sure the link is located right next to the episode. Well, thank you very much for sharing so candidly about your personal experiences and your professional experiences. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm so grateful that you're in my network of collaborators, and I really look forward to all the ways you're going to contribute to this space in the future. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Sonia. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time.